This is Politics on Demand. Order! Welcome. My name is Ian Williams. I'm the MD of Lansdowne's Communications. Uh, thank you all very much for coming along today for this um, editorial intelligence breakfast sponsored by uh, Saga. I'm going to hand straight over to Anna Ford, who will introduce the panel. So, once again, thank you all very much for coming, and I will hand straight over to Anna Ford. Welcome to this very important debate. I left the BBC in April, and one of the things I said to them when I was leaving was that I thought it was a shame, to put it mildly, that there were so few people on screen who were blatantly over the age of 60, and you could measure them on the fingers of one hand, frankly. And this didn't reflect society. And they all shrugged their shoulders and looked as they were completely uninterested in this suggestion. Whereas if you look at television in America, you see quite a lot of white-haired people in their 60s, 70s, even older than that. Uh, We've got one, Charles Wheeler, and they always just say, but we've got Charles Wheeler, they say. Yes, but Charles Wheeler doesn't represent all those people um, over that age in that category. But in America, there are people standing outside the White House during the presidential elections, recently reporting on the House of Representatives and Senate elections, highly intelligent, highly well-informed, people with a race memory of what went on before. And that, to me, is the interesting thing, that the fact that travelling a lot, as I do, you see in other societies that accumulation of wisdom which is recognised in older people, and which is valued, which I think we do not value in our society. I'm surprised, really, at how the press have not kept pace with some of the very obvious changes in both life expectancy and health in older people. I mean, I think I come from the luckiest generation in the history of the world. I had a free education at university, as did all my brothers. I've been brought up on the National Health Service, I was given free viral and orange juice as a child. Um, I had my teeth looked after. I have had the luxury of choice. I have lived in a society where we've not been at war for 50 years. And I think that compared to the rest of the population in the world, we are incredibly lucky. But I think the value of our generation is not represented in the press and in the media around us. Quite the opposite. I think we're belittled. I think elderly people are belittled. They're seen as dreary. They're seen as colourless. They're seen as, with exceptions, such as this wonderful woman on the front of Saga magazine, as rather unsexy, and they're forgotten. There's a very sort of facile shorthand in the press. I think one of the most shocking examples of this to me recently was during the election of Ming Campbell as leader of the Liberal Democrats, where every single newspaper indulged in the most blatant forms of ageism, where he was described in the most deprecating terms as elderly, old, beyond his time, past it, wrinkled, slow. I mean, terrible things were said about him. Okay, I can understand cartoons. Cartoons of any age are brilliant but not the way in which his election was reported. God, the man's only 64. He's still a youngster. I mean, I'm in touch with people like Mary Fedden, who's a painter, who's 91, who goes into her studio every single day and paints. And when she had to go into hospital recently, the young doctor at the end of her bed said, can you get around on your Zimmer frame? And she said, well, actually, I rather like using my bicycle. <laughs> and she cycles into Chiswick, cycles into Chiswick whenever she's got a dinner party to buy all the food for her dinner party and then cycles back and cooks it. 
She has what she calls her old ladies from contact to tea once a year. Her old ladies are all 60, 70 and 80. I think the change in the law may bring about some change in employment. It's a pity that B and Q are the only people who seem to celebrate employing older people. And it is a pleasure to go into a company where you're served by somebody who has charming manners, who knows exactly what they're doing, and who is willing to help you without standing there being on the telephone, chewing their nails, or looking as though you're the most boring person they've ever met. I just come back from walking in the in Bhutan, in the lower Himalayas, and of a small group of people, at least half of us were over 60, and we pretty effortlessly walked up to 14,000 feet. Yeah, we got a bit breathless, but we had the most wonderful time. Nobody complained. Everybody was full of life. And that group is reflected for me whenever I travel around (laughs) the country. I go back to the Lake District, where I come from, at least once a year to walk. And recently I've noticed midweek that every single parking place in the Lake District is taken up by a small car using very little um, petrol or diesel uh, and is occupied by people with white hair who put on their walking boots and go straight up the mountainside. Now, this is the generation who somehow are missing in the press. And I know the press are bored by them and don't want to use them, so it's up to us today to try and worry away at that particular problem. Why is it? What can be done about it? Uh, Saga already does an enormous amount. Are other other newspapers willing to try and look at the value of people over the age of 50, and dare I say it, over the age of 60 in our society? Right, our speakers this morning, unfortunately, Joan Bakewell can't be here, um, which is a sadness, but we do have Neil Stewart, who is a publisher with a policy review magazine, and a director of editorial intelligence. He's a chairman and chief executive officer of Neil Stewart Associates, a public policy conference company. He was political secretary to Neil Kinnock from 1989 to 92, and director of communications at the Royal College of Nursing, and a former president of the National Union of Students. After my time, I think. Emma Soames, editor of Saga magazine, well known to all of you, um, direct, editorial director of Saga Publishing. She's, read, she's won lots of awards for publishing and for being editor of the year and very much deserved awards. She's an occasional columnist for the Daily Telegraph. John Wilman, the business editor of the Financial Times, was appointed editor of the Financial Times in April 2006, business editor, and is responsible for a 15-strong team of specialist industrial reporters. He has a lot of broadcast experience, has appeared frequently on BBC, Radio, Sky and CNN. And he has also taught, and we were talking about his teaching in social and political sciences. We found that we had in common the teaching of boys on day release, which was one of the most interesting experiences I ever had in my teaching career. Right, Emma, would you like to start? Thank you, Anna. Houston, we have a problem. I'd just like to start with a story that I was told earlier today by um, um, our press officer, Paul Green, which seems to me to completely sum up the problem as a newspaper rang him up wanting to do um, a piece on our equity release product and said they'd like a young couple to illustrate the piece with. And that just about sums it up. Um, The media, particularly offline media are obsessed with the power and beauty of youth um, however mindless that may be 
I know about this because I've edited magazines for quite a, quite a long time now, and there is no doubt about it that youth photographs better than age. And if we are going to move forward the uh, debate, so to speak, or move forward the um, agenda and change the rules, we've got to get away from this sort of obsession with visual standards. There is an awful lot of very lazy shorthand which is used by the media. To give you one example... Um, a 92-year-old woman abseiled down a tar block. Um, in the Daily Mirror, she was Danger Gran, and in the Sun, she was Action Nan. The Guardian, slightly patting itself on the back, was Tower of Strength abseiling at 92 from tar office block, which is fine, but it's probably 12 words too long. Another brilliant example of this is, in fact, as Anna... Um, mentioned Ming Campbell and we did actually did an interview with him and asked him about this um, these appalling vicious attacks um, and he was very very robust about it actually um, and I don't think you survive in the House of Commons for 40 years without thickening your skin somewhat but what's interesting about it is that the first sign of weakness or the first sign of incompetence all the um, insults of ugliness, weakness, infirmity were flung at him. And actually, what they were talking about was somebody in their 90s. And Ming Campbell is actually 64, 65, which since last week is the average age of the new American establishment, where um, there are very, very few people in, in the new posts of power, in the reshuffle, who are less than 60, none of them in fact. So contrast this problem of um, seriously ingrained stereotypes about age with the fact that there are 8.5 million people over 50 in this country now and that number is set to grow. By 2030 over half the adult population of Western Europe will be over 50, including us, and that the over 80s are the largest growing age group worldwide. The percentage goes up by nearly 4% a year, which shows the better health, greater longevity, um, etc., of this demographic. Anna was talking about bumping into these snowy-haired people midweek in the Lake Districts, barreling up mountains. Actually, there is an awful lot to envy in this age group. Retirement, has their health has never been better. A lot of them were able to retire early. It's a sort of golden age for retirees now. And rather than slinging mud at them and in our heads treating them like... Um, 90-year-old babies, um, they are actually really one of the most um, privileged um, groups in our society today. And a lot of them may have had problems in their life, and a lot of them may still, but there are an awful lot of them out there living the life of Riley. Um, and the life of Riley does include intellectual pursuits. It is, however, changing. 
Um, I've been at Saga at a very interesting time. When I arrived there four years ago, first of all, the fact that I decided to go there from, if you like, mainstream Fleet Street, I was on the Telegraph, was greeted with what can only politely be called consternation by my peer group, who, in a word, thought I'd lost, taken leave of my senses. And when I got to the magazine, I found it was that I had been very, very spoilt, if you like, working for a Fleet Street title, and that we had terrific problems getting interviews and shoots with role models, people we wanted to interview and shoot. You know, we had a large magazine with over, at that point, over two million readers a month, um, and we needed editorial content. And could we get the people? Could we hell? Books was the first area to go. We very quickly, um, the book industry saw that uh, they sell more books to people over 50 than any other age group, so that came tumbling down, and thank you very much, we can um, interview authors now. Then film and theatre caved in. Fashion took longer, and um, our fashion editor, Leslie Ebbets, is here today, and she is at the front line of tussling with model agencies, etc., on getting um, people to, for fashion shoots and celebrities to style. And there has definitely been a change. A lot of the model agencies now have taken on, because the demand is there, have opened up departments for women over 50. Music. The music industry is still absolutely impossible Whatever the age of their fan base, and an awful lot of <laughs> the Rod Stewart, for instance, sells more um, albums, downloads to people over 50 or 60 than he does to people under 25. But he is not going to come anywhere near Saga magazine. Um, but the answer is it is changing a bit, but I am still completely amazed by how ghettoized it is. Um, I'm quite often asked for quotes on things, but really they're only to do with old age and how it's all hell. And me trying to say, no, 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 it really isn't so bad um, than I am to do with the more positive stuff that people are getting up to. And there is an enormous amount of it. I have absolutely no problem filling Saga magazine every month with really, really good stories and um, providing, I hope, a very positive view of age. Thank you. John? I'm going to talk about um, a recent news story which seemed to be a good way of focusing on the issue, and that, of course, was the introduction of the anti-age discrimination legislation which happened on October the 1st. Now, and I think the reason I was probably invited to join this is I wrote something in the FT about this in the grumpy old man department. And at the age of 57, I'm obviously very sympathetic to the idea uh, of outlawing age discrimination. But the more I looked at the legislation, the less I felt confident that it was a good solution to the problem. And uh, the piece I wrote in the FT said that it was increasingly clear that this well-meaning measure would have some very strange consequences. One would be it would add further to the further booby traps to the minefield that must be navigated by anybody who's <coughs> foolish enough to offer employment to another. But it would also waste uh, a lot of time for people seeking work who will be encouraged to apply for jobs when they have little chance of success. Now, let me, obviously, and at 57 I do believe in this, that it's wrong to allow prejudices to influence employment decisions. 
and it's also likely to be against the interests of an employer to rule out applicants solely on ages of on grounds of gender, race, disability, sexual orientation, or age. But legislating to stop such foolishness exposes employers to expensive risks, as the government's guide to the new law makes clear. And um, I must say that was what really woke me up to this. If you look at the Advisory Consideration and Arbitration Service Guide to the Age Discrimination Legislation. It, uh, it has some quite blood-curdling warnings about how failure to observe their um, advice could result in incredibly uh, difficult complaints to industrial tribunals and compensation awards with no upper limit. Now, I'll give you some examples of the things it warns you against. One is, for example, to ask, uh, asking anybody about their age when applying for a job, um, or even unnecessary information about periods and dates. So questions about experience, previous jobs, or even qualifications could discriminate against younger applicants who've not had time to acquire them. And in fact, even if you ask for people for their qualifications, it only takes a moment to note that I think most of us on the table here probably have O-levels, but nobody much over 30, under 35 has them anymore. They have GCSE. So you immediately reveal your age as soon as you give your qualifications. Even asking for a graduate is a risk, apparently. Since there are more of them being churned out by higher education these days, you're in danger of discriminating in favour of younger people again by demanding a graduate. And uh, it's worse than that. It comes down to the way you organise things at work. Employers uh, have to be very careful about creating an environment at the place of work where people feel discriminated against. So if the the staff have their sort of um, team-building meetings down at the local club, older people might feel excluded. And similarly, if they have them at the local Domino's Club, the younger people might feel excluded. And in fact, managers now can't even um, have to be very careful about what they say when they're changing their boards. If you refer to somebody as being over the hill or wet behind the ears, uh, you could find yourself facing one of these um, no uh, compensation awards with no upper limit. And it doesn't take much to realise that if it's somebody who's on the board of directors, that could be very expensive indeed. And you, haven't, you, you can't even say when a senior executive goes, you can't refer to the need to inject fresh blood or more dynamic leadership. Now, this isn't a problem, I suspect, for Sainsbury's or other big employers, all who have very well-staffed human resources departments who are used to steering through these minefields. And indeed, for some of them, it's a source of competitive advantage. The more regulation there is, the less likely it is that some upstart will come in and challenge them. Um, but they, for small businesses, they threaten a red tape nightmare that will lead some to regard employing people as just too much trouble. So the result of this sort of legislation is that it can hurt the people it's supposed to help. Younger people perhaps will waste time chasing jobs they've no chance of getting because actually what the person has in mind is somebody with more experience and who uh, does have some grey hair, but they can't be screened out in the the selection process for fear of stereotyping. And uh, older people may apply for all sorts of things which actually... Uh, if it's a paper boy they're advertising for, somebody who's going to get up and ride a bike around the streets early in the morning on cold mornings and carry heavy loads of newspapers, uh, which they're not going to get either. Now, the purpose of recruitment is to find the best person for the job, and age, experience, and qualifications may all be very important in that decision. But there's a sort of improbable desire to be fair to all applicants, which started in the public sector and has now crept into the private sector. And I know as um, somebody who was a teacher, which is when my connection with Brentford started up, and my wife is still a teacher, that when they're advertising for jobs now, when they're interviewing for jobs, they've now decided that to avoid any accusations of discrimination, they must ask all applicants exactly the same questions. Now, this strikes me as completely absurd, because supposing you know that one of the applicants, for example, 
has been teaching for two years in a, a village in Bhutan. Now, either if you want them to draw out that experience, either you have to ask every applicant, what did you learn from your two years teaching in Bhutan? Or alternatively, you just have to hope they throw it in. In some cases, age and experience are highly relevant to the world of work. In other cases, they're not. Now, government can encourage employers to look past these factors, but it's ludicrous to try and legislate for it. Well, what sort of response did I get to my piece, which was um, written in this sort of grumpy old man mood? First, I got, I got letters supporting the legislation, which mostly came from large companies keen to demonstrate their, the fact they're human beings. Others came from lawyers saying I hadn't said the half of it. It was going to be far worse. They do have a vested interest in this sort of stuff. And then there were a few Sir Tufton Buftons saying there was nothing wrong with a bit of discrimination anyway. Now, other newspapers only really took up the issue after October the 1st. Up till then, there'd been a sort of generalised coverage of the, saying that this is a good thing, you know, anything against discrimination is good. But um, once the reality set in on October the 1st, they did begin to pay a bit of attention to it. The, the Guardian said it couldn't understand the opposition that was beginning to emerge. Uh, the Telegraph missed no opportunity to see it as political correctness gone mad. And the tabloids have had a field day over councils and an insurance company that have banned birthday cards at work that mention people's age. So uh, you can't sell cards anymore saying happy 50th, uh, apparently. Uh, the Express Group, funnily enough, started off fulminating about the new law but seems to switch to supporting it. I suspect this is largely because of their letters columns, because they do have an older-than-average Fleet Street readership, so I suspect they suddenly worked out where their interests lay. But there's a debate that's yet to happen over the role of legislation in these, such a personal matter and the cost of the legislation in terms of lost opportunities if small businesses decide not to employ people because they think it's too difficult, and the potential employees who aren't offered jobs for fear of lawsuits. The, the knee, and this isn't just applied to age and ageism. The knee-jerk response of most newspapers is to call for something to be done every time anybody identifies a problem. Uh, they, like most of their readers, fail to see the trade-offs between legislation and opportunity in a hopeless search for a perfect risk-free world. So the result is, for example, to take another area that's now very hard to take school kids on a, a school trip because every so often when these school trips something does go very badly wrong and the result is to hedge them so far around with um, protection and regulation that nobody can take, the, uh, take them anymore and again the school children are the losers. It, it seems to me the government has a role to play in encouraging people to look past their prejudices but too often resorts to legislation. And now I am sounding like a grumpy old man, so I'll stop and let you all attack me on the questions afterwards. Thank okay. you very much, John. Neil? Let's try and give this uh, thing about age uh, a bit of uh, perspective. I agree with Anna's remarks. The older generation at the moment is, in Britain, probably the luckiest generation in the world. Um, it's certainly one of the most prosperous, but it's out of step with a lot of uh, uh, age profiles and demographics in the rest of the world. I'm going to blame Dennis Healy, and I'll, bring, I'll come back to that. But you need to look at the shape of age and ageing in Britain, because I think we're heading for a crash um, over age and how people's expectations about how they're going to spend their older age. It's not quite arrived yet, uh, but it will quite soon. First of all, the generation that's older than Anna were relatively at peace with themselves. They'd come through the war, their expectations were of peace uh, and reasonable prosperity, and by and large, they got that. Anna's generation and my generation, the baby boomers, um, have come through a period 
where we've been the first people to be able to exercise choice. In our personal life in the 60s, we think we can have choice all the way to our grave. By and large, we've been right up until now. We've enjoyed all the things that Anna described in her life, and we have high, high expectations. The problem is that half of our generation is going to have those expectations met. Those are people who either have retired on high annuities, are enjoying the good life, are doing what Anna's doing, which has got this wonderful phrase. If you go off to climb hills in Bhutan and then stay at nice hotels, it's called flashpacking as opposed to backpacking. So we're all <laughs> flash packers. I, I took a cheap flight to Barcelona in May. I spent ages on the internet getting the cheapest flight I could and then stayed in the most ridiculously expensive hotel I could. So apparently this is what we do. <laughs> there are higher things that I still have to <laughs> achieve. The other half of our generation, though, those people, I'm 51, that are coming behind, a lot of them either do not have adequate pension provision or are going to discover that what they think they had is worth a lot less. I mean, I sat down after I finished working for Neil Kinnock in 1992 to finish, we lost the election, so I was out of a job, to plan my future. And as a policy wonk in 1992, I decided it was probably worthless me trying to build up a big pension at my age, that by the time I built it up, the annuity they would give me would be barely worth having. So therefore, the best course was to go into business and try and build up a pot of money. Now, that's not available to everybody. But quite shortly, annuities are going to be down to about 4%, maybe 5%. Really, if you could keep your money, that's the equivalent of you know, an assumption that you're going to live for 20 or 25 years. You'd be better off keeping the cash and trying to do something with it. So the trade-offs are getting harder and harder. So what we're going to have is we're going to have the generation that's come through and shaped our country and our political life suddenly finding that a significant part of it isn't having its expectations met. And I think when that happens, there's going to be some interesting political changes. Now, we have seen, and huge credit to Saga to see this coming so far in advance, that people over 50 have emerged as a strong market segment. I mean, the marketeers are at the bottom of all of this. Of course they want young people on television. That's where the disposable income has been for the past 20 or 30 years. They've been following Anna all the way through her life uh, and her generation because they spent the money. That's where the cash is. There's an absolute economic rationale for it. And it's only because of people like Saga helping to give uh, older people a sense of their own economic power and identity and help the market understand that they have spending power. And older people themselves beginning to behave unpredictably, because up until now, marketeers have assumed that old people were set in their ways. So if you flew British Airways, you always flew British Airways. No point trying to sell them tickets. Now they started moving around. Suddenly they become interesting to the marketing men, again, and women. And uh, that's the change that's happening. However, it's quite possible that that small wall of money that's attracting interest may begin to run out. And Britain's in a particular position, which is that uh, you know, we've got a lot of trouble about the economics, the generational deal, the relationship between different generations. A lot of the huge pensions that people had and were paid out, annuities up to 8, 9, 10, so it's even 12% being paid out in the early 90s, were being paid out on what's called the wall of money 
that was being generated by a huge number of younger people behind them contributing into those accounts. And that has now run out and the economics are coming home uh, to rest. And it's quite likely, therefore, that a lot of the tail end of the baby boomers are not going to get the wealth that they expect. And that's going to have political consequences as well because that generation is also, you know, it's used to choice. It's also the most selfish generation. It's the most self-centred generation and it's going to kick back. I don't believe it's going to accept the things that the older than that generation who lived through the war accepted. And we're beginning to see the start of that kind of political power. Politicians are terrified of older people on anything to do with council tax. Um, it's incredible to watch. They fear it more than anything else. It's, uh, over the next few months, you're going to see a huge amount of running for cover every time local taxes are discussed, even though everybody believes, or everybody rationally believes, that uh, taxation has to move more local. And it's older people that they're terrified of. There are a number of big trends that are happening. Uh, chief executives of companies are getting younger. Um, now, that's not their fault. That's because older executives prefer to sit as non-executives. Running companies is hard, 24-hour work. So you have the Alan Laytons sitting behind, and I've forgotten his name, uh, the young guy that runs the post office, Adam Crozier, who has his breakfast around the corner every morning at 7 o'clock and then runs and does various other things. Uh, that's their choice. They're making lifestyle choices. But these uh, reducing ages also, as Anna said, reduces the experience and the collective memory. I think we're nearly at the point where we've got more 65-year-olds than 16-year-olds. So who's going to pay for the future in, in Britain? On the continent, they do have some more stable pension systems, um, but that's going to become a big political issue in this country because there are a lot of groups of people who are going to find that the rights they thought they had, they didn't have. Other things are happening. I remember doing a talk to MBA students from America in the mid-90s and explaining to them that the Thatcherite Conservatives and the Reaganites did not believe in inheritance. Very interesting, given inheritance tax. They think that passing money on from rich parents to rich siblings is economically inefficient. They'd much rather it was passed through the financial institutions. It was recycled. Now, most people who've built up a pot of money in their house or anything else are likely to have to spend it. Either they're going to spend it flashpacking around the world on self, or they're going to have to spend part of it on looking after themselves into their old age. Scary statistics, if you want them. Uh, the biggest study in America of how people die, because one of the things about age is you have to remember that we still have to die. And how you die is one of the biggest choices of age. And this is not a flipping point. In the state of Oregon, they discovered that 90% of all the health care spent on people was being spent in the last 10 days of their life. Now, you know, that is economic madness. Um, and obviously, our governments are trying to avoid that. And they're going to uh, not privatise it, but they're going to keep it off the NHS so that the NHS doesn't break, which is why people are going to have to provide much more for themselves. The generation coming through are not going to inherit the big houses that they expected. So expectations in Britain are going to become very, very disjointed, and I think that's going to have uh, political consequences which are going to start to come through. I don't quite know where they're going. I think some of the age discrimination legislation is going to provide a lot of fun along the way, some of it in employment, but it'll be interesting as well that um, the kinds of products and things that people offer will be increasingly 
challenged and the generational deals that are at the basis of all our financial services and things will come under huge pressure. Just to say, our financial institutions haven't quite abandoned us, but most of them are already more interested in China than they are in Cumbria. There was a fantastic figure in the FT yesterday which said that um, the number of people in China who were going to go into savings plans, of which pension provision and others is part, was likely to rise from 30 million to something like 120 million. In other words, the Royal Bank of Scotland, HBOS, the old Midland and others, who are all positioned in East Asia, are expecting to win more savings business in four years between 2006 and 2010 in China than all the Scottish widows, Clydesdale banks, NatWests and everybody managed to collect in Britain uh, in a century before. Um, and the reason is they're going after the young people because in the rest of the world, the world is young and we're getting old and I think we're going to pay a price for it and it's going to have huge consequences. And on that happy note, I leave you. <laughs> Thank you very much. The reason that Dennis Healy is the, the guilty party is that when he was faced with the IMF uh, crisis in 1976, his get-out-of-jail card was to allow early retirement right across the public sector and encourage it in the private sector. And he started the wave of people taking early retirements because the younger generation's money would pay for it and it wouldn't appear on the public accounts. And he established this thing in Britain, which isn't prevalent in other European countries, of people getting out of the workforce. We therefore lose their skills, but we also built in this bias towards younger, cheaper and especially in service and media industries, younger, cheaper people. And that, the consequences of that have rippled through for the next 20 years, and we're just beginning to untangle them. And they've made a mess of a lot of pension schemes and a lot of financial structures. But these things are generational, and it's coming home to roost. Thank you. Right. Let's have some responses to that from the floor. Carol. Carol Stone, as it's an age discussion, I have to say I'm 64. I just want to say that I think it's quite encouraging. I, I take Neil's point and the point that uh, the pensions and people aren't necessarily the haves and the have-nots. But I joined the BBC in 1963 at 21, and I can remember them saying I'd be two years unestablished staff, and then I'd be established staff, and I thought it won't worry me, I'll be married by then. Well, I actually had to wait till I was 57 until anyone asked me to marry them. But I did really feel that I was going to stay at the BBC until I was 60. I actually left at 48, and I have now got what they call a portfolio career, which I remember Julia Neuberger saying would be the, the case at that time, that people are more and more doing that. I think the hopeful thing is that more and more people are, we're told, thinking that you haven't necessarily got to stay in a job, of course, for life, and that my um, stepchildren don't feel that, and that they are now putting much more emphasis on the quality of life and lifestyle, either going to live in a, a, abroad in a sort of a more gentle way of life, or at least feeling they won't take the high jobs, just as you're saying, because there is much more family and family orientation and, and, the, and the men sort of joining in a bit more and I only wish that when I joined the BBC at that time I thought of it for the next five or six years and didn't think of it as a career for life and I think it's very hopeful that more people are putting the emphasis on the things that matter. Thank you. David Seymour, I was the political editor of the Mirror Group until uh, the beginning of this year. Uh, I was at the Society of Editors conference last week and I learnt an extraordinary um, statistic. Um, can anybody here guess what the average age of readers of national newspapers is? 54. It's 54. It's 50. And um, apparently, and it's going up. 
uh, despite all the best efforts of, uh, of the newspapers to try to appeal to a, a younger readership. And I, I think that um, a large part of the problem isn't just of older people, it's actually of the media, which is obsessed with youth. And as, uh, I don't know if any of you saw John Norton's, um, his speech, the Society of Editors conference repeated in, re reprinted in the Observer on Sunday. Uh, fantastic, because in fact he said, you know, young people don't care about us, we're just completely don't understand anything that they're doing and we're, we are irrelevant to them and the media has got to learn that. So I think from a media point of view, it's their problem, not all of them, but to a great extent it's their problem. Um, and uh, the other point I want to make is that I have for a long time thought that the great problem of the media, but also of politicians, is that when they were trying to, to uh, persuade people that they ought to work longer, instead of actually saying to them what Neil referred to as, we don't want to lose your skills, we don't want to lose you, it was, it was as if it was a sort of burden. We can't afford for you to retire. And uh, we had I mean, a particular uh, hobby horse of mine is the fact that so many teachers, the best teachers, were allowed to get out of teaching in their early to mid-50s. Um, and meanwhile, we were scrabbling around trying to find teachers, and nothing was ever... All they said was, well, you've got to work longer uh, because the pension funds can't support you. Instead of saying, you are the best teachers, what can we do to help you? Can we put you on a part-time basis, job sharing, whatever it is? You know, go off for a year. They never thought of this. I've talked to government ministers about this, and they just look at you in a blank way. They don't even begin to understand it. So I don't think it's just a problem. I think it is a big problem for the media, um, but I also think it's a problem for politicians. As Neil again said, politicians don't understand how to deal with older people. And the council tax thing is, uh, I mean, I had an article in the Mail recently about Mail, which does employ older people. I'm glad to, delighted to say. I've had a lot of letters, I'm still getting letters from Daily Mail readers about including copies of letters that they've sent to their MPs who have sent them on to government ministers. And government ministers don't even begin to understand the issue of council tax. I don't, I don't understand. But I think, you know, Saga is clearly doing great work and, and um, it, it's not just in the magazine, but it's campaigning as well. But I think really once, if older people can be organised properly to campaign, I think there's a phenomenal amount of power and strength there and we really need to get going. It's terribly tempting to organise. I was thinking of organising an old people's hunt in Westminster. This would um, keep old people fit because we wouldn't use horses, we'd, we'd be on foot and people could bring any old dog that they'd got. Uh, and, and this was because I saw a very large dog fox walking out of the garden of the Speaker's house one day and sauntering along the road in front of the Houses of Parliament. And it just sort of appealed to my sense of anarchy that we would have a... We might hunt West, um, MPs as well. Who knows? But th there seems to be a sort of central question of values here. Carol mentioned the sort of values of having a portfolio of... Uh, her stepchildren's generation thinking about having a different lifestyle from ours. I mean, on the international quota of happiness, Britain didn't come very high up the league. We're a rather obsessed and stressed nation at the moment, whereas Denmark, which came top, and I think Bhutan came pretty near the top, and I can quite see why, having a sort of Buddhist attitude to life, that other people have different attitudes to the way they live their lives, and somehow we have become very obsessed about many of the wrong things. And I wonder whether that's too big an issue to even begin to tackle. But on, on one little thing that Neil was talking about as well, and Dennis Healy, I was, I was wondering why politicians don't use elder statesmen, perhaps you've answered my question, like Dennis Healy anymore, and why they all have baby advisors with no experience at all. 
Why do they have these young men, it's nearly always men, who don't seem to have ever done a proper job or been anywhere or know anything about people? And they're giving politicians advice about how to run the country. Uh, well, it's partly because the House of Commons allowances are not, not good enough to employ anybody older than that. Again, it, uh, you know, the, the, certainly there is a big problem in all the political parties, in fact, about, who are the, about the fact that people, unless they get involved in politics as a very young person, at the moment usually a student, I mean, I can, as an ex-NUS president, I can look across all the benches and see all the usual suspects who were running around with Dave Aronovich and Trevor Phillips and myself in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and they seem to have colonised all the political parties. What you don't see, and which the Conservative Party used to provide a bit of, was people in their 50s, the farmers, the business people and others coming in uh, and being selected. Um, and again... As they do in the Assembly in France. As, as they do in other countries. There seems to be a bit of reverence... Uh, for these, but it's a, some of it's about chasing the voters and this marketing uh, mentality that you don't go over for the whole of the electorate, you go for the swing voters, and the swing voters are people who can't make their mind up, and needless to say, young people are disproportionately represented in that uh, category, so they're always a preoccupation. During the last general election down on a housing estate in South Wales, and we said, are you going to vote? This is the first time you're unable to vote. And they said, what's voting? And we said, well, in a democracy, you're able to choose who the parliament... What's a democracy? Well, in a democracy, you're allowed to go to the ballot box and you can choose which political... What's a ballot box? There's absolutely no knowledge at all about the democratic process, about how they might be involved in it, about whether they were interested in it, or what, what a political party meant, about which party might represent any views that they had was quite extraordinary. Let's take another point from the floor. I feel I should say something as a 25-year-old former political advisor. There seems to be a, a huge disconnect, perhaps. I'm convinced that there's a tremendous problem with the reporting of older people in the media. I'm also convinced that there's a tremendous unfairness in the reporting of younger people in the media. I think being a teenager is pretty grim if you read any newspaper at the moment. And the disconnect comes in that I think an awful lot of people aspire to retirement. They aspire to retire younger than ever before and aspire to the, um, the advantages that retirement can give you, despite the fact that it, retirement is presented so often as a crisis and a, a, a problem of, uh, of wealth and income. And the, the odd thing seems to be that uh, the, the position of, uh, of older people is, is reported so badly in the, in the media, in the media as, as is the position of younger people, and yet we still, more, more than ever, want the um, liberation that... Uh, being older can give you. I think that's absolutely true and I agree with you entirely about the reporting of youth. I um, think that if we keep describing young people as yob culture then it predisposes them to behave like yobs and most people of 16 who might be designated yob culture have never had a chance in life and if we'd brought them up they wouldn't be yobs um, but I agree with you about the reporting of youth and, it, and it's very unfortunate. Yes. Who is actually going to sort this out? Because politicians are, by, are, short, are short-termists. They just look to the next election. And businesses look to the next quarter share price. But, so who is actually going to sort out the problem of our health, Alzheimer's, all these sort of things? Someone has got to do it. And you can't see politicians doing it, and you cannot see big business doing it, because that's not how they think. Perhaps the insurance companies 
which have to take a long-term view, and perhaps the pension companies that have to take a long-term view. But it's interesting to see, I think there's a crisis in, in who is actually going to manage this process. I just slightly wonder whether uh, there is such a problem that everybody says there is, that um, all through history people have muddled through whatever circumstances they found them in, and people muddle through what they find themselves in now. It's very interesting that you said that some people, uh, everyone wants to retire earlier. Whenever you have these financial makeovers in the newspapers of people in their 30s and 40s, their, their main aim is to stop work within five years <laughs> and uh, do something different. And most of them won't make it, but it's a dream they have. Uh, and they'll probably go on and they may retire a bit early and they may not. We started off talking about the fact that there was nothing wrong with being old and old people were neglected in the media and their needs aren't met. And yet we come on a bit later and we're talking about teachers retiring too early. And again, being married to a teacher, I know exactly why that is. It's just a completely exhausting job that nobody could possibly have the energy to do except in exceptional circumstances in their, in their 50s, particularly in the, in the uh, public sector. So it seems to me that the idea that there'll be any sort of solution at all would be a bit utopian. I mean, there's never any solution to anything. But what you do find is that... More businesses than you would say will be paying attention to this. I mean, I think B&Q were off the mark very early on this and have benefited enormously from it. I have to say, I've started noting, noticing other supermarkets employing older people now. Because, again, the, the supply of younger people is drying up, as we all know, for demographic reasons. And, and similarly, in product areas, people do direct themselves towards find, finding solutions. They can recognise a market when they see it. For example, there are all sorts of um, service uh, organizations I see springing up now. I was involved in the uh, Entrepreneur of the Year Awards and I went to one of the regional heats and I'd say a good third of the people in the regional finals for the South and Midlands were from what called the social enterprise sector. These are people who aren't, they're not for profits and they've almost invariably grown up around providing social services for councils which don't want to do it in-house anymore because they realize they don't do it very well and have have contracted with these people who've set up their own organisations to do it for them. And they're providing an ever wider range of services. And again, that's sort of part of an evolution. Instead of putting people in homes when they get old, you now find ways in which you can provide them with services at home. So I think one of the things about the media, me included, is we always love crises. We all go rushing around like Corporal Jones in Dad's Army, shouting, panic, panic. But actually, these things have a habit of muddling through. Obviously, there are problems as you go through it, but I think these things do sort themselves out. Yes. Hello. I, I work for an organisation which um, deals with crime prevention and crime reduction, and I just wanted to touch on something that hasn't been raised today, which is older people and the fear of crime and the role of the media in portraying older people very often as victims of crime when statistically they aren't the group most likely to be victims of crime and what that does for the decisions older people make about their life choices um, and potentially curtailing their lives and not living their lives to the full. Thank you. Hello, I work for the Alzheimer's Society. My name's Maria McDonough, so I don't have such a rosy picture of, of what it is to, to grow old um, as every day we're battling to get media attention and to get political attention for the causes of... Um, the three-quarters of a million people we are members who have um, dementia. Um, and we've recently run um, a, a campaign to get dementia drugs available for everybody um, that needs them and to have them prescribed on the NHS. And this is just an example. I'm 
we battle lots of, of different issues every day, but this is one concrete example. And actually, Saga Magazine, thank you very much, are helping us with that. We've got a, an article coming out in Saga soon. Is the discrimination in the media and in political arena. It's one in five people over the age of, eight, of 80 um, have some form of dementia, one in 20 over the age of 65, yet everybody in society seems to me in a from where I work and from my position, colludes together to be in denial that we're ever going to get old and that diseases and, and, and things that are, that are prevalent, more prevalent in the older age group, are going to happen to somebody else but not us. So it's put on the back burner. Politicians don't want to bother about it and papers don't want to report it. It's interesting when you say politicians don't want to bother about it because politicians are our elected representatives, aren't they? So if they're not bothering about it, why aren't we putting more pressure on them to bother about it? In the health service and in the media, I think, Alzheimer's is not a sexy subject. Cancer and uh, heart uh, diseases are dramatic, heroic uh, solutions. The media love writing about that. And the cumulative effect has been that we have cancer czars and uh, uh, coronary czars, and they're making a huge difference, and you get all your drugs. If you are in a family who has somebody who's got Alzheimer's or some of the other long-term care... You know, you're likely to see your family finances wrecked uh, trying to f- fund this kind of thing. And this is the kind of thing that's going to start coming through more and more, the injustice of it, that one set of people has all their long-term care and high interventions met because politicians in the past have been uh, pushed into making sure there was proper provision and others are excluded. They're trying to shut the door. And, and the arbitrariness of it and just the numbers that was mentioned there, this is going to come to the surface. Uh, in a way that, and in other countries, less so, because they make more universal provision. Um, And these are the kind of gaps that are going to exist in the deal between the generations, between people and the state, and they're going to become much more visible over the next 10 years. And you're going to hear much louder cries as people's expectations. Because, of course, if, if you've got an elderly relative who's got Alzheimer's, then all your expectations about how you're going to spend your older years are likely to go out the window because a whole generation are going to become carers but a lot of them don't know it yet. I think the points Maria was making were very valid. I think all the diseases of old age, dementia, osteoporosis, they, people find them very, very distasteful and indeed they don't kill younger people. So you don't have the Kylie Minogue factor and the people being mown down at young ages with heart attacks and the other thing is this the carers thing it is a massive input into society that carers make and they are the great unsung heroes of our society actually and they are fulfilling unpaid largely a role that would cost the government billions to fill and also fulfilling it in mostly a very, very humane way because it means that people can stay at home, they're looked after by people they know. It's an absolute perfect scenario. And if there isn't support for these people, it's going to drop away. I just wanted to endorse something that John said in response to Charlie. Um, I'm Rita Cruz O'Brien, by the way, and I'm a director of a company called smartage.com. I feel that this debate and the presence of older people is coming on. And I think it can't, isn't something that can be 
legislated very easily, although that touches a portion of it. And I think it's something that can't have a policy or a concerted effort. But I do honestly think it's beginning to change, and discussions like this on even a more general scale will bring it on. Because this segment of the, um, of the population, for example, over 65s, the fastest growing users of the internet, admittedly from a lower base, but still it's very interesting. In market terms, they're really being recognized as well. And I feel what Anna said, that indefatigable optimism and positive attitude is going to sink through, and that a lot of these things which we're deploring now will come right in due course. I can't help feeling there's going to have to be a massive change in values in our society. One of the things that upsets me is the incredible amount of waste in terms of money. Not just the Iraq war, vast waste of money on the Iraq war that could have been spent elsewhere, but waste on endless other things which are introduced which don't work. I mean, IT systems and the government for one. Um, And if we reassembled our values and we reassembled our economics in our society, it would be perfectly, pro- perfectly able to live and to sustain a decent life for everybody. It's just that somehow things have got off in the wrong direction. Yes? Hello, it's Geraldine Sharp Newton, and these are some scattered thoughts, starting with the fact that I do think that television, newscasting, and all of those have, have paid not the right kind of attention to the kinds of stories that we're talking about. We are very much celebrity-driven. We are young-driven and youth-driven. And I think that as a result, our news networks, our papers, etc., really play to that. And what is so interesting is that that 55%, you know, a lot of people are actually older who are reading the papers. And I think that we actually have to have a voice that says it's not good enough that we really want the kind of stories that are important. On this funny thing about fashion and women and everything that you're looking at, everything stops at 50. There is nothing that exists after 50 on how we should look, etc. And I think that that's also just a funny, weird little aside. The other aside is the fact that we live in a society where we have lost manners, And I really do feel very strongly when I get onto the underground and I see older men and women standing while young people sit and do not move, there is something wrong with our society. So we basically have an enormous amount of challenges with not necessarily a lot of solutions. But one of the things I do want to say is that I do think that us over 50s, 60s, we're different than our parents. We are much more active. We have embraced the continuing ability to work, to want to work. We do know that we don't have the funds to actually kind of stop. And and I think that that's, in a funny way, I think that's also kind of healthy. It is about staying engaged, and I think it's people like us that will actually help find the solutions for what's going on today. Sam Mercer from the Employers Forum on Age. I really just wanted to make a point that I think it's it's very easy in these sort of discussions to assume that age segments are all homogeneous and that that people all have the same expectations and aspirations and I um, work with a lot of people who sort of talk about portfolio careers and working onwards uh, with a great sense of excitement and I can totally understand that because I have a job that I love that's interesting there are a lot of people out there who are in very physically demanding jobs who can't continue working and I think 
to sort of talk about extending working life and working onwards as a good thing. It's not a good thing for everyone. Um, and I think we have to be much better at sort of dividing people up and saying, is age actually the right way to divide society? Because I don't think it is. Um, and I think that the, the experiences of different people at the age of 50, 60, 70, and also how you divide what's old, you know? There is a massive difference between people who are over the age of 90, over the age of 80, and those over the age of 50. And yet we make this assumption that everybody over 50 is the same. And I saw um, a really interesting article which was talking about sandwich packaging, which sounds like a bizarre thing, but it was saying the over-50s can't cope with getting into sandwiches the way that they were packed. And I was like, you know, thinking, are you comparing a 50-year-old with a 90-year-old here? Because it's like saying, it's like comparing a baby with a 30, 40-year-old. Uh, so I just wanted to raise that as a point. Very good point. Thank you. Another point here. Noreen Sieber from International Longevity Centre. One aspect I would like the media to take up is the intergenerational connection. I think we've been polarizing the problems of the young and the issues of the young and the issues of the elderly. But there are some fantastic examples of young and old working together. We recently went to a House of Lords meeting with Beth Johnson Foundation where young people were going out into the community and working to help elderly people with communications skills, actually operating computers. And I do think the grandparent role at schools, uh, that's an, another whole group of silent elderly people who are involved with our young people, actually caring after school so that we can all work. So there are areas there that could be so much more highlighted to be a more positive attitude. I actually do speak from experience. I'm very privileged that um, in my late 50s, my mother is 100 in February, and my young teenagers live near. And we do see the possibilities of connection. Thank you. Yes. I'm Sandy Walkington, um, EI consultant. First of all, a confession. I was selected to fight a winnable parliamentary seat over the age of 50 on Saturday. So um, I will be going up there and flying the flag. But just to bring it back to the main topic, which is how the media comment. And will it just be the case that, particularly with online media as well, that we will just see completely different publications aimed at different people and people will suddenly realize as there was the pink pound that there is the grey pound and that we will see, um, say, Saga actually buying up the Daily Express or something and actually saying this is a national newspaper and we're quite deliberately going to run stories about old people. That's where the readership is. That's where the balance of advertisers will need to be. And will it just simply be that economics will suddenly make people wake up and realize that they're all chasing after an increasingly illusory audience of young people who actually are not reading the product, do not have spare cash, are not spending money, and in fact they've actually missed the boat. And then in fact the powerful people with influence who actually go and vote, who've got money to spend, are in fact the older population. Yes, um, John. When you have these sorts of debates, there's always this um, sort of slight feeling that the media should be doing things that they don't do, and that may or may not be true, but I always feel they sound a bit like a call for the media to be more like Pravda and Izvestia, that we should tell people what we think they should hear rather than what they want to hear. And I think the point about the average age of newspaper readers is very interesting, because I would predict to you, with a fair amount of confidence, the average age of newspaper readers will rise by one year every year from now on. <laughs> Nobody under 30 reads newspapers. 
So newspapers in the end, if old people want to read different sorts of stories, are going to have to provide them for them. And the little crack I made about the Daily Express in my introduction maybe is, shows the way things are going, because soon the only people who are reading newspapers will be people over 40 and 50. Uh, but I, I, just, I still doubt whether actually old people want to read stories uh, of the sort that you're describing. And actually, I suspect old people, people for example, are average consumers, uh, avid consumers of stories about crime which are the ones that fill them full of horror about the way the world is going, even if they're not threatened by it. It's just impossible to pack everything into a piece of printed work that lands on your doorstep or you pick up at the station every day to satisfy all these audiences. And I suspect that the printed word will concentrate on people who um, read the printed word. But the Guardian Unlimited and the online bits will be targeted at the other segments. The only question will be whether it can all be under a Guardian brand or a Daily Express brand or whatever else. They'll have to diversify and people will go to the bit that they want. On television, I love the History Channel. I get more of the things that I'm interested on in the minority cable channels than uh, I, I, I get in the mainstream media, which uh, the, the top four uh, terrestrial broadcasters, um, because they're obviously still chasing... Uh, the advertising pound. I just want to say one thing about physical health and about retirement um, because I do make this crack about this is a battle with death and it is about choice. I mean, people are doing the optimism stuff. We're all going to live longer and be healthier, but at some point we're likely to die. When Dennis Healy, um, <coughs> almost certain to die, when Dennis Healy changed the rules on retirement. I was a director of Ensley Insurance, which was partly owned by Friends Provident. I went to a dinner, this is sort of 1984, the chief exec of Friends Provident, who told me that they were outraged, they were in real trouble, even eight years after he'd allowed all these teachers to retire early. Because if a teacher retired at 65, on average, they were dead by the time they were 68. And that meant that the insurer only had to provide for three years. And that had been the calculation they'd made since the 1950s. That's the lead time. However, if you retired at 60, you lived to 72 on average, which is 12 years, which is four times as much money had to be found by the insurer, but nobody had paid it. There's two messages in that. One is the scale of the finances if you retire earlier and how much more you have to pay. But the other one is if you work later, especially in physical jobs, teaching, police, uh, nurses, uh, all sorts of jobs that have a physical demand, it's likely that if you work flat out to 65 or you work later, you'll die sooner. So people have to understand these choices. The insurers and actuaries know it, and they're all trying to cherry pick. Um, but that's the reality. And some people, if you can do the gentle step down in white-collar service and media jobs then fine, you can keep clicking away until you're 90. But for a lot of people in factories, never mind opening sandwiches, making sandwiches, um, they're just not going to be... I mean, sandwiches is the biggest manufacturing sector in London, if you're interested in manufacturing statistics. They took a huge jump. Nobody could understand why manufacturing was back in London until they discovered that making sandwiches was categorised as manufacturing. If you work longer, you die younger. And people have got some very difficult choices to make. That's, that's a thing that's not often mentioned in this debate. Thank you. Yes. My point to John was I know that unintended consequences and all that. Saga was looking to, to, to start an employment agency for people over 50. 
um, but that's become illegal, so they can't, um, <laughs> which is ironic in a way. Uh, my question was really probably directed at Anna. I, I think Greg Dyke said the BBC was hideously white. Is there a case for saying that it's also hideously young? And if that was to change, do you think that the way that uh, people over 50 were portrayed on television and radio would change as well? Well, I think it should. We began to have categories at the BBC for uh, people who we were supposed to haul in on news programmes as interviewees so that a doctor was no longer supposed to mean a white man. Um, and if we could get um, a black woman who was also a doctor, then that would fulfil some of those categories. And certainly people's black books did begin to expand with these other categories of people in our society. But I don't think it's expanded upwards, and we don't have nearly enough older people. And I think the absolute obsession with the broadcast media on television with particular sorts of looks is very damaging because it doesn't reflect the people in society I mean, there are loads of people who are wonderful characters who would come over on television incredibly well and people would love to watch over the age of 50 who don't fit into the category of beautiful young woman. Um, and they're not chosen simply because the people who choose them have a very, very narrow mindset. But I think it's interesting how the Marks and Spencers campaign using Twiggy, who must be 60... <coughs> has been such a success in selling clothes for older women. The Marks and Spencer on the back of that have begun to sell fashion, which is fashionable, for loads of women over the age of, over the age of 50. I'm Leslie Abbott, I'm fashion editor at Saga. Two things I wanted to say. The reason why I knew when David was asking about the average age of the national newspaper reader was 54, is it is often quoted to me as the average age of the customer in the high street. And I'm not just talking about Marks and Spencers, because when they realized that they could make money, which is what this is all about, when they realize that there is um, an enormous amount of economic uh, benefit to be made of um, a customer, that then, then they will invest in it. And they found Twiggy, who hasn't hit 60 yet. She's She's about 56, I think. But the minute that happened, I was suddenly rolled out as a consultant for an enormous amount of people who suddenly realized that they had this statistic and that they desperately needed um, someone to come and tell them how on earth do we dress people who are over 50. You know, this is terrible. And I'm 60, so I sort of weighed in there quite heavily. But the, the one thing I wanted to say was that we do live in an, an era of image, as Anna was saying about definitely on television, I was dropped from this morning the minute I hit 50. And it's something that you can actually change. At Saga, when Emma came, I was doing clothing. I wasn't doing fashion, I was doing clothing and putting it on models who were slightly older, who were in their 30s, perhaps, or late 20s. And when I started doing fashion and doing it on women who were 48 and upwards. And my session on Friday was with a woman who was 78 and stunning. Um, I realized that there is an enormous amount of excitement and optimism in this. Just the world of the press that we, had to, we have to influence, it's also the world of advertising, isn't it? That's the point that I was been wanting to make, is that they're selling anti-aging to people of 25. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's a good point. The other point I wanted to make is to take it away from the media at the, at the moment. Old age is regarded as a burden. It's regarded as a burden by government. 
because of pensions. The old people are regarded by the NHS as crumblies, wrinklies, and there's a very damning expression. They're called frequent flyers, and it's as if they're going to hospital often out of choice. If we can move the perception of older people, which, as another, uh, another person said, you know, it covers a thousand sins from 50 to 90. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's a 40-year... I'm editing a magazine for a 40-year demographic, and I feel like I'm doing the splits every month to try and do something for everybody. It's as diverse as people from 15 to 50. But if we can start looking at old age as a resource rather than as a burden, that would be a terrific sea change and a very, very fundamental one. And it would also... I mean, the pensions industry is in a huge mess and the government keeps sort of poking a stick at it. Yes, they commissioned the Turner Report, but have they adopted its principles? No. They've backed off. And the ones that they have adopted, for instance, like the um, earnings link, instead of putting it in from the end of this year onwards, they've left it as long as possible till 2012, which will cause um, great distress to a lot of pensioners over the next six years. Any points from anybody about how we might um, influence the press, given that this is about the press and ageing, and there have been a fair <coughs> amount of complaints about, about how the press behave towards the older population? Thanks. I mean, I've been through this for years on the, on the mirror, and they are absolutely obsessed with young people, completely obsessed with young people. And if you, if you, look, you know, look through the mirror, and, and in fact most of the, I mean, the sun really, to a certain extent as well, uh, and there's things like it, it's, it is full, it's not just celebrity but it's celebrities that frankly I think nobody over the age of about 25 has heard of You took in today's issue of the Sun Mirror and said look, let's just go through all these pages all these people in this is very young what do they say? Go away old man <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean not they, but pretty well that's yeah. the idea and the fact is that, that young people get their, their information whether it's about celebrity or whatever they want to learn about from other sources now. It's not just the internet. I mean, if you want to um, read about celebrity, I think you go and buy Heat magazine or something. It's what you see mainly young women buying and young men read whatever these things are, zoo and nuts and, and whatever. Why do they want to buy the, the sun and the mirror? And the, and the sales are, are going down, I mean, catastrophically going down because of it. I just think there's a fantastic opportunity for which the, the Daily Mail, I think, has to a great extent exploited. And some of the... I mean, I think the Telegraph is, is going, plunging down into this sort of much more of a youth market and losing out for it. You know, the Telegraph was the newspaper, which was in the Times to a certain extent as well associated with older people. And they sort of, they're in a panic now about going after the youth market. That's why I say it's a problem for the media much more than it is for, for older people because they're the ones that are losing sales. And I, I, I do think that, that the Daily Mail was a very interesting debate at the Society of Editors Conference. Uh, Andrew Neil gave the opening lecture, and there was a, a woman there who um, Greenslade wrote about this in the uh, Media Guardian, and she challenged him about, well, why is, if you say we've got to do all these whizzy new things, why is it the Daily Mail, which is probably the most old-fashioned newspaper, is the only one that's putting on sales? And Andrew Neil couldn't answer and wouldn't answer, and it is something which you would think that editors and journalists and newspaper managements want to look at. And then I could, if I could just add one thing that 
probably shouldn't say this because it's confidential information, but on the BBC's obsession with 18 to 34-year-old men, the city hospital programme that goes out at 10 o'clock in the morning on BBC One have been told that they, they really only want to um, interview uh, men who are in hospital young men who are in hospital and they've got to be happy stories. Now the only young men who are in, in hospital um, are either have broken a leg playing football or, or they're dying. And it's all to do with the, the, the BBC's absolute obsession with, with young males, not even young people, but young males. I can remember having exactly the same re- reaction when you were told, silly old man, go away. I was told, silly old woman, go away. When I suggest that le- leading the news on Bruce Forsyth's wife's dog's missing was not actually one of the 14 most important things that was happening in the world that day. Ian. I think we must leave it there. Um, thank you all very much for coming. And uh, thank you to our distinguished panel uh, for your input. Politics on demand.co.uk.